I was 17 years old when I surrendered my life to Christ. I was just starting my senior year of high school. And pretty soon after that, I felt a distinct call into ministry, and specifically to be a pastor. And so I jumped on a plane, left my home of Salem, Oregon, and landed here in Chicago on the north side of the city at a small school called North Park University to study Bible. And uh, when I arrived, I had been following Jesus for all of 10 months. And so I had a lot of rough edges that God was beginning to refine. And so I made this commitment uh, to not date anybody for the first year of college. I knew that the kind of girls that I was likely to pursue would probably just get me into trouble. And so I said, no dating for a year for me. Then I met Kasha, okay? Met Kasha during freshman orientation, uh, my freshman year, and uh, Kasha was a missionary kid. She had spent the last 15 years of her life in, in uh, Romania and Hungary. She was woefully out of touch with American pop culture. Uh, she had uh, a wardrobe that I called uh, uh, full of missionary colors. She wore like fourth generation hand-me-downs, and so uh, nothing in her wardrobe was the same color as it started out as in the store. Uh, and I, was smitten with this missionary kid. And so I had a chat with God. I was like, okay, God, I know what I said. I, said, <laughs> I know I said no dating girls would probably get me into trouble, but uh, I uh, look at her. Just look. She's like the opposite of trouble. She's the most squeaky clean person I've ever met in my life. When Cash and I first met, we got talking for three hours because we got carried away discussing systematic theology, just to give you a temperature of the relationship, okay? Some of you have heard uh, of the Bible rule for Christian dating couples, which is that you should be able to fit a Bible between your bodies at all times. For Kasha, I'm pretty sure it was like a large print NIV study Bible rule. That was her rule, okay? Uh, and so uh, within a week of my freshman year, I had created and utilized an exception clause to my no dating rule. And so we began dating a couple months later. And things were going well, and uh, we decided, well, if things continue to go well, we'll get married uh, after graduation. That's kind of what everybody else was doing, and so he said, well, that, that'll be our default plan. Then something happened. I uh, came back early my sophomore year uh, of college from, from winter break. Uh, I was an RA, I was 19 years old, and they brought us back 10 days early for RA training. But training was like two hours a day, so I had all kinds of time on my hand. So I spent a lot of time at the gym, and I spent a lot of time reading scripture. I memorized the book of Philippians while on the campus uh, gym treadmill. And I uh, spent a lot of time in a prayer journal. I was, uh, got into prayer journaling. And there was one cold January night where I was seated at my dining room table in my apartment, and I got my laptop out and, and was typing in my prayer journal and got carried away into what became an hour-long, like, really intense prayer time. It's one of the few times in life I can say, like, I very, very clearly heard from God. And at the end of the hour, I stepped back from my computer and I said, God, you're calling me to marry Kasha, like, soon like way sooner than we had been planning for. And I didn't quite know what this meant. I was, I was terrified because there was no good reason for us to get married other than I felt like God was calling us to. So and then the implications began to hit me, right? And I was like, okay, so first step, should probably tell Kasha. She's sort of involved in this whole thing. Um, what's she going to think, right? 
uh, crazy boyfriend uh, wants to get married soon. And then if she buys in, what about, we have to tell our parents, right? And now her parents are missionary family. They might buy into the whole God told me so thing. My parents were fresh into following Jesus. And I was pretty darn sure that if I told my parents this, they would be uh, less convinced that I was uh, hearing from the Spirit of God and more hearing from hormones and ramen, okay? Uh, that, that, that's, I was like, so what are they going to do? And then there's our, our friends, our classmates, and the list kind of went on and on. The more I thought about it, I was like, my goodness, this is going to sound so foolish. Well, eventually we uh, did get married, uh, and we got married less than six months later, a day short of six months later. It was three weeks after I turned 20. And although I would say this next picture is probably more indicative of our uh, day-to-day relationship, that's probably it. Um, and, uh, and, and it was, it's, we had a community that came around us and said, we affirm your call. We really depended heavily on the wisdom of people who around us who love Jesus and who are wise. And, and so we got married. Um, the point of this, though, is I want that, that moment, that, that moment at my dining room table on that cold January night, when I felt like I had heard from God to do something that seemed really foolish, I felt like I got a taste, a small taste of the experience of a woman who shows up early on in the Jesus story. It was a woman who had a divine encounter that would forever change her life. This woman was Mary. This divine encounter was with an angel who showed up and told her that she would have a miraculous pregnancy and that she would give birth to a boy who would save the world. This is a miracle that we affirm belief in every single time we gather for communion weekends and we recite the Apostles' Creed, right? So we read this every time we gather. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. But this is a miracle that chances are most of us have not spent a lot of time thinking about. So that's our task for today, is to dive into this miracle. It's a miracle that's recorded in two of the four gospel accounts, in Matthew and in Luke. We're going to spend uh, the majority of our time looking at Luke's account. And uh, just in case you're not familiar with uh, the Bible, Luke is uh, a physician, a trained physician, who was tapped on the shoulder by a really wealthy guy named Theophilus to sort out this Jesus story. It was still new, and so Theophilus said, I want to get to the bottom of this. And so, Luke, will you uh, conduct interviews? Will you compile an account? So Luke was a physician who became an investigative journalist, right? And uh, we are going to pick up in the end of chapter 1, but at the beginning of chapter 1, there's another miracle. It's another angel showing up to another woman, another couple, uh, uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah. And they are elderly. They have no kids because Elizabeth was barren. And to this old couple, this angel says, you're going to have a baby boy. This boy would grow up to be known as John the Baptist, who would pave the way for Jesus. So that's context. We're going to drop into verse 26 of chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can grab them. If not, the words will be on the screen. In the uh, sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive 
and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Around here, we like to thank God for speaking to us through his words. Let's do that now. This is the word of the Lord. Here's the big idea for today, all right? The virgin birth is the most foolish miracle. It's the most foolish miracle. Here's why. And for those of you who like filling in your outline, you'll be very pleased. You get to fill the whole thing out right now. Ready? This is why this is the most foolish miracle. Because God became a baby to a poor young woman from an obscure town under questionable circumstances to save the world. What it boils down to is this. If you are going to make up a religion and try to gain a bunch of converts, you don't start out the story with, hey, God became a baby to a poor young woman from an obscure town Questionable circumstances. That's how he saved the world. That's not how you start it. That would be foolish, right? So let's break this down. First, God became a baby. See, Jesus could have dropped out of heaven, fully formed as an adult human, ready to teach and heal and all the rest. But that's not what happened. Instead, he becomes an embryo in a womb, which goes through all of the normal fetal developmental phases and then delivered through normal labor, And that's just the beginning, right? After that, there's poopy diapers. There's uh, falling headlong into the uh, coffee table. And then, of course, there's puberty, right? And and for those of you who are parents in the room, you know that raising uh, a child is perhaps one of the most stressful things in the entire world. Uh, Most of early parenting is really, when when it comes down to it, just preventing your child from endangering themselves and other humans. That's really what it is. Cash's parents used to pray every day, God, just get her to five years old. We can take it from there. Just get her to five, right? Can you imagine being put in charge of raising the Messiah, (laughs) right? One of my absolute favorite passages in the Bible comes uh, in the very next chapter where we find this. Uh, Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. And after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Friends, for a day. This makes Kevin's mom and dad from Home Alone look like parents of the year, okay? (laughs) You you guys can never say that the Bible isn't encouraging, at least in some sense. You parents, you, you, you got freaked out because you lost Jenny for eight and a half minutes at Target that one time. They left Jesus for a day and didn't even know about it, okay? Jesus became a real baby. To very real parents. And so we sing these words in the famous hymn, In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in what? 
helpless babe, the Messiah, the King, the Savior of God's people, became a helpless babe. It sounds foolish. Second, he became a baby to a poor young woman, okay? So first, Mary was poor. The best indication that we have of Mary and Joseph's uh, socioeconomic class or status comes from a detail in the next chapter, Luke chapter 2, when we read that Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to have him consecrated at the temple and undergo this purification rite, okay? And the protocol for this purification rite, as dictated by Leviticus chapter 12, uh, said that a lamb was to be offered by the family, okay? A lamb. But it was a sliding scale system, so those who were not able to afford a lamb were allowed by concession to offer two birds instead. Mary and Joseph offered two birds. They were amongst the poorest of the poor of their time. So even if we buy into the fact that God would become a helpless baby, are we really to believe that the Lord of the universe, the one who made everything, the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, was born into poverty. Second, Mary was young, okay? Mary was somewhere between, get this, 12 and 15 years of age. Common age for betrothal or engagement at that time, which Mary was, was 13 years old, okay? She was uh, studying for a driver's permit. She still had her braces. And uh, God was like, you, you are the one I'm going to entrust the Savior of the world to. Uh, teenagers in the room, I want you to hear me. Uh, the Apostle Paul, when writing to a man named Tim Timothy, once wanted to encourage him. And so in 1 Timothy 4.12, we find these words, Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example. God chose a teenage girl 2,000 years ago to be the one who would raise the Messiah. Teenagers in the room, set an example. You are not too young. Set an example for your classmates. Set an example for your teachers. Set an example for your siblings, your parents. You are not too young to be used by God. So do not let anyone tell you otherwise. Third, Mary was a woman. Surprise, right? But listen, Luke sets out to tell this story. It's a story about John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth. And yet, where does Luke choose to start his story? It's not with John and Jesus. Instead, it's with Elizabeth and Mary, two women. And so Luke was bought into the old adage that behind every great man is a great woman. Amen, ladies? The central figure at the start of the Jesus story is Mary, not Joseph. And this is surprising for two reasons. First, the culture at the time significantly elevated men above women. In Mary's world, uh, to be a woman meant that you were literally owned by another man, whether it be your father or your husband. To be a woman meant that you were voiceless, that you were insignificant, you were lower than second class, you were property. Second reason this is surprising is because the whole reason that the angel appeared to this woman named Mary was because she was engaged to Joseph, who was a descendant of David. In other words, for the prophecy to be fulfilled, the Messiah would be of the Davidic line. So Joseph is really the important figure in the genealogy. 
So what we should have is a dad story, but instead what we have is a mom story. And it's a mom story of eternal significance. Listen, Jesus was born, he lived, taught, healed, he died, he was resurrected, and he rose again. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. And and listen, Jesus didn't shed his body when he ascended into heaven, which means that right now and forevermore, Mary's DNA is seated at the right hand of God. Ever thought about that? Throughout the Bible, in the last 2,000 years since the time it was written, spiritual revival has almost always included women playing a critical role. In a world that has always given power and position to men, God has consistently raised up women to advance his kingdom on earth. There are tons of examples throughout the Bible. They often don't get enough mention. I just want to list a few, okay? So first you got Deborah, who uh, led Israel. Judges chapter 4. Huldah, who interpreted the law, 2 Kings 22. Esther, who saved God's people from genocide. Mary Magdalene, who was the first to preach the gospel after the resurrection. Anna, the prophet, Luke chapter 2. Priscilla, who corrected false teaching. Lydia and Nympha, who, who hosted house churches, using their resources to host churches in their homes in the early church. Phoebe, who was a deacon in the early church, Romans chapter 16. The list could go on. Then, of course, there's women outside of the Bible who've been hugely influential. You have women like Dorothy Day, the journalist, suffragist, and nonviolent activist. Mother Teresa, the Albanian Indian Roman Catholic missionary and nun. Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote the, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which would radically, profoundly reshape American attitudes towards slavery. Rosa Parks, the activist who played a pivotal role in ending segregation in our country. Corey Tenboom, the Dutch watchmaker who opened up her home to Jews who were escaping the Nazi Holocaust. Fanny Crosby, a blind woman who actually believed that God used her blindness to write hymns that would lead many, many people to Christ. Evangeline Corey Booth, daughter of William Booth, who is largely responsible for making the Salvation Army what it is today. And Amy Carmichael, the missionary to India, who uh, served for 55 years caring for orphans and writing. And 2,000 years ago, God entered the world by taking up residence in the womb of a woman named Mary. Mary is just one of many, many women that God has used to usher in world-changing kingdom movements. Throughout history, there have been typically three types of people groups that have been oppressed in nearly every culture. It's women, children, and those who are poor. And God chose the intersection of all three as his entrance into the world. By the way, this is why we have chosen this year's year-end gift to be what it is. We are raising money to send 750,000 meals across the world to some of the poorest people. Friends, we believe that God is always the biggest advocate and voice for the oppressed, the downtrodden, and the overlooked, which means that his church, us, should be first in line to serve those who are in greatest need. I'm pretty convinced that there is, there's nothing less controversial than feeding starving children, right? So church, would you consider, carefully consider today, this week, how much you want to set aside towards our year and gifts so that we can be a church that truly is 
a body of believers that loves in word and deed. Can you do that? God chose to enter the world as a poor baby to a young woman. But the far-fetchedness of God's plan doesn't actually end there. God chose a poor young woman from an obscure town. Okay? So last week, uh, Jim talked about Jesus' birth town being Bethlehem, which was relatively obscure. But if Bethlehem was relatively obscure, then Nazareth was nearly unheard of. Okay? So when Luke is teeing up the episode between Gabriel the angel and Mary, he said, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Now, why does he add that descriptor, a town in Galilee? Because Luke knows that the people who would originally be reading his writings would have just a hard time locating Nazareth on a map as you or me here today, all right? Nazareth was a podunk town, plain and simple. It was out in the boonies. Scholars say it had 500 people max, perhaps as little as 150 people. And apparently if you could find somebody who knew where Nazareth was, it did not have a good reputation at all, okay? So, which is why in John chapter 1, Jesus is just beginning his earthly ministry and we read this episode. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and finding Philip, he said, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. The uh, 2019 Chicago Reader's Translation of the Bible puts it this way. Nathaniel was ready to leave his belongings and follow Jesus until he discovered that this Messiah hailed from Green Bay. <laughs> it's very close, very close to the original Greek there. So Nazareth wasn't just a small town, it was a despised town. Put simply, people from Nazareth were nobodies. And they were nobodies who never became somebodies. And yet, God set his sights on somebody from this nobody town, a woman named Mary. God became a baby to a poor young woman from an obscure town under questionable circumstances. Okay, so here's where we get into the virgin part of the virgin birth story. And really, this is what it boils down to. In a world before artificial insemination and in vitro fertilization, if you were pregnant, it meant that you had sex, plain and simple. And two of the gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, both claim that Mary had an extramarital pregnancy. But they say it didn't happen as a result of sex outside of marriage. It happened as a result of a miracle of God. So this raises an important question. Should we take this story literally or figuratively? Last month in our uh, Science and Scripture series, Jim uh, said that when he has asked the question, do you take the Bible literally? He said, well... I take the literal parts of the Bible literally and the figurative parts figuratively, which is a pretty good rule of thumb because the Bible has different genres of writing which have different intents, different different purposes. And, And so our question today is, which one does the virgin birth narrative fall into? Is it a story whose historicity doesn't really matter? Can we look at it simply as a figurative or symbolic story? I want to give four reasons why it's important to see this as a literal historical account, not just a figurative lesson, okay? Reason number one is Luke's purpose. Remember, Luke is an investigative journalist setting out to compile history. Luke is saying this actually happened. Second is Mary's response. So 
Don't let this go by. When the angel Gabriel uh, appears to Mary and says, hey, you are going to experience a miracle. You're going to conceive miraculously and give birth to a baby boy, right? Mary's response is not, wow, what an honor. That's fantastic. No, Mary's response is, wait, how is that going to happen? I'm a virgin. In other words, Mary's response is much the same as our response reading this today. See, we tend to think, uh, many of us, that uh, people who lived 2,000 years ago, first century, they were just gullible, kind of dummies. Like, they would just go along with, yeah, here's a miracle. Sure, I'll believe that. But the reality is, saying, uh, be, be, becoming pregnant and then saying, God did this to me. That, that would be just as absurd then as it would be today. All right? Mary's response tells us this isn't... Uh, symbolic story. Third is Jesus' nature. This is a theological reason why uh, so an actual virgin birth is necessary for us to understand uh, Jesus' full humanity and full divinity. It's a central Christian doctrine. Jesus is fully human and fully God. Jim's going to talk a little bit more about this during our Christmas Eve services, uh, but, but really what it comes down to is it would be hard for us to see why Jesus can be fully divine, not just fully human, if he had a biological mother and a biological father. Does that make sense? Fourth and finally, Scripture's promise. So the virgin birth was designed to be a, uh, an occurrence that would fulfill prophecy. Jim talked about this last week. I'm just going to briefly touch on two Old Testament passages. The first is just a hint. It's a glimpse. comes from the third chapter of our Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So even in the third chapter of the Bible, we have a, a, a prophecy that there will be a Savior who will come and defeat Satan. But what's interesting about this is the language that's used. See, in the Bible, people are uh, described as how they, in relation to their father, which is why you have son of, son of, son of, and then the father listed. And yet here we, we see that uh, enmity will be between uh, the serpent and the woman, between your offspring and hers. So we have a hint at the virgin birth story. Then, of course, we have the famous Isaiah chapter 7 uh, passage. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. We're going to talk more about this in just a minute, but uh, suffice it to say, this story from Luke makes a claim on literal history. But here's the thing. This miracle stands out amongst every other miracle in the New Testament. And here's why. Most of the miracles, if not all of them, so far as I can tell, are obviously beneficial to those on the receiving end. In other words, miracles are always a joyous occasion, right? So Jesus turns water into wine. Here's a bunch of wine, right? Jesus heals a sick person. Go away well. Jesus looks at 5,000 hungry people and makes food. Here's a bunch of food, right? Miracles are a joyous occasion, but not here. This particular miracle was dangerous for Mary. And here's where it's really important for us to get in the shoes of Mary. Standing on this side of the Jesus story, the virgin birth doesn't really hit us with the strangeness that it really should. We talk about the virgin birth casually because it's become so familiar. We read Isaiah 7 every Christmas time. And so we might be inclined to think people would have been waiting for this miracle to signal the arrival of the Messiah. But if we think that, we'd actually be wrong. See, there is no evidence that at Mary's time, 
anyone was looking for a miracle baby. Yes, Isaiah 7 looks clear to us, but it only looks clear from our vantage point. Think about it this way. Why were people so surprised when Jesus was arrested and mocked and beaten and then eventually crucified? After all, we have passages like Isaiah 53, which says he was wounded for our transgressions, and by his stripes we were healed. It's right there. It's, it's really the same, the same reason. The messianic descriptions are kind of hiding in plain sight, but it's really only in hindsight that we can see these things 2020. So as Jim mentioned last week, readers would have picked up Isaiah 7 and read, A virgin will conceive and give birth, and that, conclude that, well, there was a virgin who well then, was no longer a virgin, and then she gave birth. Kind of a normal story, right? We can see what's hiding in plain sight in Isaiah 7 because we know how the story ends. But readers during Mary's time would not have seen Isaiah 7 as a miracle passage. In fact, even as Mary is hearing the words from the angel Gabriel, it's unlikely that she would have connected the dots between Isaiah 7 and herself and thought, I'm the one. It's not likely. Okay, so why, why is all this important? Here's why. What this meant was Mary could not say, after she became pregnant, hey guys, I'm the virgin that you've been waiting for, right? No such virgin would have been expected. This had very real implications for Mary. The angel comes to deliver this good news. Just as suddenly as the angel appears, the angel's gone. Mary is left alone in this moment with her thoughts. And you better bet her mind was racing. She was thinking things over. If this is going to happen the way the angel says, then there are very real and immediate implications for Mary's life. First of all, she's thinking of Joseph. She's thinking, okay, I've been visited by an angel, but there's no indication that she is going to have angelic help convincing Gabriel of this miraculous occurrence, which means that she's going to come to Joseph, and what is he going to think? Have you ever had to tell somebody... Uh, news that you knew would absolutely devastate them. Like that pit that is in the bottom of your stomach for the days leading up to that conversation. That is what Mary would have been feeling ahead of her conversation with Joseph. We knew uh, from the Gospels that Joseph was a uh, law-observant Jew, and, and going through Mary's mind is likely that Joseph is going to divorce her. In fact, that's exactly what Matthew's Gospel says that Joseph was planning to do when he found this out. The scenario that Mary knew that she was likely facing was this. Joseph is going to divorce her, which means three things right off the bat. Number one, she will become destitute. We've already talked about it. She was already poor. Divorce would make her even poorer. Second, she's going to be a single mom. And third, both she and Jesus will be ostracized. She will be ostracized because she'll be seen as sexually promiscuous. Jesus will be ostracized because he will be seen as an illegitimate child. Okay? So that's if Joseph divorces her. But what if Joseph doesn't divorce her? Best case scenario, this family unit stays together. How will the community around them see this family? Best case scenario, they will see this. Joseph is a coward, Mary is a whore, and Jesus is a bastard. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus is referred to as the son of Mary. What do you think that's about? It's a slur. As we talked about, people are referred in, in relationship to their father. It's not son of Joseph, son of Mary. They're calling Jesus a bastard. That's best case scenario. More likely, going through Mary's mind is the worst case scenario. 
See, Mary would not claim that she was violated because she wasn't. Joseph won't claim to be the father because he isn't. And that means there's one remaining category for Mary's pregnancy, adultery. And the prescription for adultery during Mary's time was painfully clear. Stoning to death, often publicly. This was Mary's world. This is what would have raced through Mary's mind when the angel brought this good news. This was supposed to be good news? Mary must have been wondering, is there any other way for this Messiah to be brought into the world? So, when we see Mary's response, we need to let it hit us with fresh force in a culture where consent to this plan meant risking absolutely everything. Mary's response is, may it be. Many of you uh, grew up in a Catholic church, Catholic setting, where you were taught that Mary is not like you, right? She is a higher class of humanity. She was sinless, that when uh, she was taken right up into heaven without ever dying, that we should pray to her as an intermediary between us and Jesus. These are things that the Bible does not teach. Uh, but many of you, on the other hand, who have spent some time in the Protestant tradition, have overlooked Mary, uh, perhaps overreacting to Catholic theology and being reluctant to acknowledge the role that she plays in the story of Jesus. In other words, if the Catholic Church makes too much of Mary, then the Protestant Church has historically made too little of her. But a healthy view of Mary is to see her as an ordinary person, just like any one of us here today but also as a woman who is an incredible pillar of faith, an example to look towards, right up there with Abraham and Moses and David in our Christian heritage. She is the one who said yes to the plan that saved us all. So she deserves some honor. At the very least, Jesus is a good son. And to be a good son, he's a mama's boy. And so you better bet, if there is an acceptance speech of the great banquet in heaven you better bet Mary is going to get a, a special seat and an honorable mention. So we should start now. Honoring Mary is a good and right thing. So this Christmas story is the story of God becoming a baby to a poor young woman from an obscure town under questionable circumstances. But why? Well, he did all this to save the world. Matthew chapter 1, an angel visits again this time visiting Joseph. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. God's plan all along was to use this story to save the world to save the world through Jesus. But this adds up to a pretty bad start to the story, or so it seems, right? So what are we to do with this foolish miracle? There is actually a portion of the New Testament that brings the word God and foolish right into the same sentence. It comes from the hand of Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to this. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. We've all seen the magic trick where the uh, magician is in a pair of handcuffs, right? And he doesn't have the key. And his job is to get out of this pair of handcuffs through magic. Uh, but over time, this, there come more and more layers have been added to this trick. And so instead of just chains on his hands, it's like chains on his whole body. And instead of being out in the open air, he's like in a tank and he's got to hold his breath the whole time, right? Why are all these layers added to a simple trick? Well, more difficulty means the magic of the end is all the more magical. So why are all these layers of foolishness added into the virgin birth story? All of it comes together to form one main message. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for God. So basically, one of God's favorite plays is to throw a Hail Mary, right? Oh, sorry, I had to. Like, I had to. It was right there, okay? All right, so how do I want to end our time together? Here's how. I actually want to end by bringing us back to the beginning, the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. In Hebrew... The earth was tohu wabohu, one of my favorite phrases in Hebrew, formless and empty. And God was on a mission to bring tov, to bring goodness. That was God's mission in the beginning, to bring order where there was disorder. And many years later, we read of the Holy Spirit on the move again, this time overshadowing a poor young woman, giving her a child, a child that would create order in a world of disorder, a child that in a world of tohu wabohu would be tov, a child who would be known as the light of the world. So at the birth of Jesus, God is saying for a second time, let there be light. In the very first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we read of a woman who was given a huge and dangerous task. It was a task that would alienate her and bring her shame and ridicule and mockery, but a task that would bring blessing to the world. And her response was, not my will, but your will be done. And 22 chapters later, we would find her son in a garden, faced with a huge and dangerous task, a task that would bring him mockery and ridicule and derision, and yet a task that would bring blessing to the whole world. And his response was the same as his mother's. What should this Christmas miracle do to us? First, you who are young, I want you to know that God sees you. He wants to use you. Women listening, God sees you and wants to use you. You who don't have much, God sees you and he wants to use you. Second takeaway for all of us, follow 
Mary. Follow Mary, who looked at the cost of obedience and said, may it be. Follow Mary, who saw that curses can actually be blessings in disguise. Follow Mary, who was a nobody, who simply said yes to God, and it changed the world. And lastly, follow Mary to Jesus. See, Mary's selfless obedience meant that she risked her life. Jesus' selfless obedience meant that he gave his life. Mary's obedience meant that Jesus was miraculously born. Jesus' obedience that means that you and me, friends, can be miraculously reborn. Mary's obedience meant that God came to us. Jesus' obedience means that, friends, now we can come to God. Let's pray. God, we are humbled by the Christmas story of God become flesh. We are amazed, God, that you are the one who uses the foolish things to shame the wise. That when we feel weak, you say, I am calling the weak to shame the strong. You are the God who takes nobodies and makes them into somebodies because of your great love. God, nothing is too hard for you. I pray that this season we would see the Christmas story with fresh eyes. That we would let it surprise us. That we would let it bring joy to our hearts. God, just as Jesus was the light of the world, pray that we too may be lights in the midst of a dark world for your glory. In Jesus' name.